If you got your Bibles with you and you want to follow along, turn with me to Genesis chapter 7, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 10. Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Uh, the title of our lesson this morning is The Open Door. The Open Door. Um, as y'all know, we're going through the whole book of Genesis, which is 50 chapters. We started in January. We've made it to, to chapter 7. Uh, this does not mean we'll be here for 10 years. Uh, it's just that the first 11 chapters are going to take more time than, say, the, 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 the last 39 chapters. So uh, we're a little bit slow, but we'll get, we'll get moving a little bit quicker. So Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, the title of our lesson is The Open Door. I want to begin with this this morning. There is a movement in, in Christianity today uh, in evangelical circles, something called inclusivism. <clears throat> and inclusivism is, uh, is kind of a, a word, obviously, it's, it's got the idea of inclusiveness in it. But it's the idea that, that anybody that's going to be saved is going to be saved through the blood of Jesus, but they don't have to actually believe the gospel in order to be saved. Okay, it's called inclusivism. And, and, and again, you, you kind of need to repeat, repeat that. It is, an, it is a belief that, that sinners, that unbelievers, don't actually need to have heard the message of Christ or believe the message of Christ in order to be saved. In other words, you know, if you're a, a Hindu and you're born over in India, just do the best you can, right? And if you're sincere, that in the end, Jesus is just going to wrap his arms around everybody and, and bring them all into the kingdom, and you don't actually have to believe in Him, or know Him, or hear about Him, or any of that stuff. Okay, it's called, it's called inclusivism. Now, we can ask the question, well, why would people come up with that? You know, the Bible's very clear. Jesus said, John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. Um, the Bible tells us, uh, you know, uh, over and over to believe and be saved. Right? There's all kind of things where we have to believe the gospel. Well, the reason people come up with this teaching is because they say, well, you know, this idea that you have to hear about Jesus and believe in Jesus, that's just too narrow. Right? God would never narrow it down to just this one way he, because He's too loving. He just would not, would not do that. Now, listen, I could sit here today and give you tons of scriptures to refute that. I could give you all kind of different arguments to tell you why inclusivism is not true. But there is one argument that stands above every other, and it is as bold and as blatant as any argument could be, and that is the flood. There, there's just no other. I can give you all these scriptures, but I'll always come back and point to the flood. Because in the flood, you have God saving eight people and literally drowning billions. I mean, see, this is why this story is so important and why we spend so much time on it. Because it's real evidence, real evidence that sometime in the past, God judged this world. And a whole lot of people perished and just a very few were saved. Jesus in the New Testament will say this, Many are on the wide road to destruction, but only a few are on the narrow road to salvation. Just a few. See, it was true then, it's true 
today. And the flood stands as this just glaring evidence of this. And so, as Christians, we are to be, the, the lesson for us is we are to be ready. But we are also to urge others to be ready as, as well. Now let's turn to our, our, our lesson today. We start in Genesis chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 1. Now before we read that, I want to go back to Genesis chapter 6. If you go back to chapter 6, and God has given Noah instructions for building the ark. He says, man, I'm going to flood the world. I'm going to destroy all flesh. And when you get to the very end of chapter 6, you see this. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And then in chapter 7, it starts with the word, then. Now, what I want to point out is there's a whole lot of time has passed between chapter 6 and chapter 7. Okay, in chapter 6, he gives him instructions for building the ark. He says Noah did all he told him to do. And when you get to chapter 7, there's seven days out from the flood. So there's a whole lot of time, right? In fact, what we do know is there's probably at least 120 years. You remember back in chapter 6, God said this, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Basically, he said, No, 120 years from now, the flood is going to come. you got 120 years. And so Noah has been building this ark for years and years and years. We don't know the exact time, but probably 60, 70, 80, 90, 100. No telling how many decades he spent actually building this, um, this vessel. Again, we don't know how long it took but a whole lot of time exposed to ridicule, exposed to, man, you're an idiot. What are you doing? There's no, you know, you're building this, this, this big thing out here in the middle and there's no water anywhere around us, right? Decades, by the way, of questions in his own mind. We said that last week, laying there at night thinking, man, is this, is this for real? Is God really going to do this? Am I, am I going to, you know, I mean, just, again, he's just a man, just like us. He's not a superman. He's just a regular human being who experiences doubts and questions the way uh, we do as, as well. But then we come to chapter 7. Let me back up and read that. Verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So now the time has come. He tells Noah, Go into the ark. It's time, so he, if we go on and look in verses 2 through 3, it says this, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. Now I want to real quickly cover something. Uh, remember many years earlier in Genesis six nineteen. God had told Noah, take two. In fact, if you ask every, any kid that knows the story, how many animals did, did, uh, did Noah take in the ark? They would say, what? Two of every kind, right? But in actuality, he says, take, take additional animals in there. He actually, here he's supplementing his original instruction. He says, there's certain animals, Noah, I want you to take more of. Now, there's a question here, whether it's 7 or 14, and I bring this up because of depending on what translation you're reading. There's a lot of different translations of the Bible, and some of them it may say take seven, and the other ones it says take seven pairs. Okay, depending on, I'm not sure what yours says. The Hebrew text, if you go back to the original Hebrew, it's a very ambiguous statement. It says take seven, seven. That's what it says. 
So some translations just translate that as seven, while others say he brought seven pairs. Okay, now, what I want to point out here is if your Bible says something a little bit different from mine, uh, it's not that they're, they're messing up here. In fact, I, I gave you a list here, if you'll see. That if, you, if you've got the King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, the .NET Bible, the NIV of 1984, it'll say seven. But if you're like me, who uses the ESV, mine says seven pairs. The ESV, the uh, NIV in 2011. In fact, the, the 1984 NIV said seven. The 2011 NIV says seven pairs. Okay. So again, and in fact, my Bible has a note in it, a little asterisk. If you look down at the bottom, it says, could also be seven. They, they don't know. And again, it's not that these guys are trying to undermine Scripture. And I want to point that out to you. It's just the fact, this is a very difficult, a very ambiguous statement in the Hebrew that they're doing their best to translate. So it's either seven or it's seven pairs. And this is just one of those areas where we cannot be uh, completely sure. I mean, even if the best Hebrew translators in the world can't quite figure it out, there's, there's no way that we're going to be able to. So it's either 7 or it's either 14. Whatever the number is, God brought the, brought the, the, the right number to, to Noah. Um, and by the way, we also know, as we said a, a couple weeks ago, there's plenty of room on the ark. This would probably only make a 1% difference if they did 7 or 14. It doesn't really, it's not going to matter as far as the animals they can get on the ark. Now, so he says to him, I want you to bring more clean animals. Okay, unclean, just two of each kind, but more clean animals. Well, we have to ask the question, well, why? Why would he tell Noah to bring more clean animals? Well, it's necessary because of what will happen a year later. A year later, when we get to Genesis chapter 8, uh, verse 20, it says this, when Noah gets off the boat, it says he built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. So he took some of those extra animals that he had brought with him and he offered them on the altar. Now, listen, if, if Noah had only taken two clean animals and he had offered one, of the, one or both of them, he basically just made the whole species go extinct, extinct, right? So that makes perfect sense that he would have brought extra animals of the ones that he was going to sacrifice when he gets off the, the ark. And that's exactly what God uh, tells him to do. Now, I want to just real quickly, I get asked this question a lot. In the Bible, it talks about clean animals and it talks about unclean animals. Okay? We've said this before. We don't, and by the way, we don't abide by any of these rules today. If you've ate shrimp in the Bible, is an unclean animal. And we love shrimp, don't we? I mean, if you don't love shrimp, there's just something, there's something wrong with you. I don't know what, I don't know what to say. Uh, catfish, unclean animal. Once again, if you don't like catfish, there's gotta be something, uh, morally wrong with you. I don't even know where to go with that. So, if you, but if you go back to the Mosaic Law, especially Leviticus 11 through 15, there's all these laws there for the, for the Jews and for the Hebrews. And it's, and it's all these things saying, these are clean animals, these are unclean animals. And, and, and unclean animals, you don't touch them. You don't eat them. You don't do anything with them. You only mess with clean animals. So there's all these rules and regulations and what they can do and what they can't do. But here we see that these, this idea of clean versus unclean actually existed way before Moses. I mean, the, 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 the Mosaic Law is not even, we're not even near there yet. And he's already telling Noah, take clean animals. 
So there's an idea in their culture that certain animals are clean and certain animals are unclean. So people often will ask this question, well, what makes an animal clean versus unclean? Is it, some, is it that some animals are literally uh, dirty? I've heard people say, for example, catfish are bottom feeders, right? So they'll eat anything. And so that kind of makes them, eh, you know, probably not the cleanest necessarily, but man, it sure tastes good, right? Um, is it that? Is that their bottom feeders? Is that what makes them uh, uh, an unclean animal? Is it because eating them would somehow affect your health? Does it mean that some animals would be less apt to carry diseases? Then is that what this whole clean and unclean thing uh, is about? Well, let me tell you, there may be something to some of that, but that's not the primary uh, issue. It's not the physical makeup of an animal that makes it clean versus another animal that's unclean. It, it's much more to it than, than that. In fact, let me ask you this question. If you go back to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament where they had to offer animals, did offering all those thousands upon hundreds of thousands upon maybe millions of animals over the years, did it ever wipe away one sin? No. In fact, the New Testament tells us it's not possible for, the, for the, the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That, that's not even possible. So, so all those clean animals and all that blood that was shed for all those years upon the altar didn't, do, didn't take away one sin, not one. Even the clean animals. You see, what all that did back then, and we've covered this numerous times, was, was it pictured a sacrifice that was to come. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It was all symbolic until Jesus comes on the scene, and of course he makes the, the, the final sacrifice. In, in the same way, clean versus unclean is just symbolic. Again, I'm not saying that it may be some better not eating pork. You know, they didn't eat pork, right? Well, pork probably ain't the best thing in the world, for, again, but it sure tastes good, right? It's probably not the best thing for you. So there may be some residual issues there when clean versus unclean. But it's not really that. You see, if you go back in time, when God comes on, begins to communicate with His people, the first thing He wants us to do is to learn how to make distinctions. You know, I've said this before, and I think it bears repeating. If you were going to teach somebody calculus, where do you start? You, you just start with a number line. You start with basic math, and you learn them how to add, subtract, and then you add in multiply and division. Then you add in maybe some algebra, and then you move to trigonometry and geometry, and eventually you get to calculus. Well, see, when God starts to communicate with people, to teach people who He is, He can't start with calculus. He has to start with the basics. And at the very basic, God says, if you're going to deal with me, you've got to learn how to make distinctions. There's my way, and there's the other way. And if you want to communicate with me, if you want to know me, you start doing things my way. Learn how to make distinctions. That's incredibly important to, to God. So he starts teaching his people very early. Listen, you don't think it was very early. Cain and Abel come and make a sacrifice. And God says, uh, Abel, your sacrifice is accepted. Cain, not so much. You didn't do it the right way. See, there's, a, there's God's way and there's the, your way. Right? And God very early, I mean the very first people that are born. In fact, in the Garden of Eden, He said, all those trees you can eat. That one, no. 
You've got to learn to make distinctions. There's, there's right and there's wrong. There's God's way and there's the other way. And, and as he goes through the Bible, you're seeing this affects everything. It affects our money. It affects our diet. It affects everything. That if you, want to, if you want to know God, walk with God, obey God, learn how to make distinctions. And so I think this clean versus unclean is just part of this whole process. You can't, you can't serve God. In fact, we were having, I was having a conversation with someone about this morning. You can't serve God and say, I love God, and then just do things any old way you want to do them. It don't work that way. It just, I'm sorry, it does not work that way. God's got certain things, certain ways, certain... He wants us to walk in obedience to Him. So you can stand over here. In fact, Jesus said it as clear as a bell. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. In other words, if you love me, do things my way. If you love me, do things my way. And by the way, the opposite of that is if you don't do things my way... Well, you can say you love me all you want, but that's not true. Because if you love him, you want to please him. You want to know him. You, you want to get closer to him. And to do that, you walk in his ways. So again, it's all about making uh, distinctions. By the way, those laws were only temporary. Okay, They went through the Old Testament in Acts chapter 10. We all remember Peter has a, he takes a nap and has a dream and he sees a sheet coming down and there's all these unclean animals and... And God says, Peter, rise up and eat. And Peter says, I'm not touching unclean animals. God says, no, that's, I did away with all that, son. If, I, if I've created it, it's good for you, right? If you, you take what you want now, it's okay. And he changed all of that. But see, those laws, and I want us to be clear about this, were never intended to indicate some higher level of morality. That somehow you're a more moral person if you eat unclean animals and don't eat unclean. It's all about symbolism. It's all about making distinctions. And God did away with that. So again, and, and so I don't want you to see unclean animals, clean animals. The clean aren't superior, right? A sheep is not somehow some kind of superior animal to a, 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 a you know a catfish or something like that. We don't we don't make it based on that. They both manifest the wonder and the glory of God. And by the way, God saved both, didn't he? On the ark, he didn't just save the clean and say, I'm going to let all those unclean. No, he saved them both because they both manifest his glory and his intelligence. All right, seven days. We 120 years have passed since chapter 6. We come to chapter 7 and God says it's time. And basically what's left now is seven days. Look at verses 4 through 5. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth for forty days and for forty nights. And every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. You know, for many people, I I told you in this study, not only do I study uh, articles and journals and, and read books from believers... But I also read a lot from unbelievers because I want to hear what they say about this. And for a lot of them, they regard the, the story of Noah and the flood as a, a myth or a fairy tale. Now, over the next two weeks, we're going to talk a lot about the flood. Because, listen, if the flood is true, we should be able to go find evidence that it's true. And, there, and listen, there's plenty of evidence out there. You've been told 
we've been told and fed a lot of lies over the years. And I'm going to show you plenty of evidence that there was a flood, an absolute global catastrophe. I'll show you plenty of that probably over the next two or three weeks. So, but today, I'm going to change up just a little bit. Today, I'm going to stick strictly to the facts of the Bible, what we know, okay? And here, I'm going to give you three of them, and here's number one. God's judgment is a fact, okay? God's judgment is a fact, if you go back and read the Bible at various times throughout history, God has judged. He's judged individuals. He's judged groups. He's judged cities. He's judged entire nations. For example, we all know the story of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He judged those two cities when the fire of God rained and destroyed them all. Um, God ordered the Israelites when they went into the land of Canaan to destroy the Canaanites, to destroy a whole people group because of their, their sin was so bad. Israel itself is a nation that was judged in the Babylonian captivity. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. because they did not accept the Messiah. So you go that back through history and you see judgment time and time and time again, sometimes on individuals, sometimes on cities, sometimes on entire nations. Now, I want to point something out real quick. Did you notice, go back and look at your Bible right there. God says this, for in seven days, and there's a personal pronoun there, what does he say? I. I'm going to send the rain. In seven days, I'm going to blot out all living things from the face of the ground. I point that out because... I think it's really important to note that God never, ever tries to get out of, under the responsibility of, try, never tries to get out from under the, under, under the responsibility of taking full credit or full responsibility for judgment. He says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. See, God doesn't expect us to get him off the hook. See, I think there's always seems to be an effort in Christianity sometime to, to make excuses for God. See, people will come and say, well, what kind of God would do that? What kind of God would destroy two cities? What kind of God would, would, would destroy a, a whole people group? What kind of God would destroy billions of people in a flood? What, what kind of God is that? That's not loving. And what do we do? Well, we start trying to make excuses sometimes, don't we? In fact, a lot of people, a lot of... Uh, of so-called Christians that said, well, that flood story, that's just a, that's an allegory. It didn't really happen. Don't, don't take that for, for reality that that happened. It's just kind of a, it's kind of an allegory. And they don't even, some people don't even believe it anymore. Or, or they'll go out and make other types of excuses. And so we kind of, we kind of come up with all these things, scramble around to try to defend God. But God never asked to be defended. God never asks us to make excuses. He never resists taking responsibility for judgment. He's kind of like, you know, who, who was it? Was it Truman that had the thing that said the buck, the, the, the buck stops here? I don't remember who that was. Well, God's kind of that way. Look, the buck stops right here. Don't look anywhere else. Don't make excuses for me. I decide when judgment comes. I'm the judge. And I do it rightly and I do it justly. Don't make excuses for, for me. And he doesn't want us to develop 
see, there's a theology out there today called the openness theology. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. And, and what the openness theology says, well, God doesn't know the future. He doesn't know what you're going to do. He just tries to fix it after you've screwed everything up. That's, that's basically what openness theology... And that theology comes out of people trying to make excuses. Well, God didn't really know that that was going to happen. See? So you, that, those kind of things happen when you're trying to get God off the hook. But listen, God is perfectly fine with being on the hook. Don't you worry about that. He's perfectly fine with being the judge, and the, he's perfectly fine with the buck stop right there with him. So don't try to, to do that. And the flood stands as the past example, bar none, of the fact that God judges. And in fact, not only will he judge the whole earth in the future, he's already done it once in the past. There was no other judgment that was this widespread and this severe, and God says, I did it. Nobody else, I did it. So that is uh, fact number one. So fact, not only has he done it in the past, and not only has he done it once, he's going to do it Again, it's going to happen. That is a fact. Number two, which leads us to our second one. Judgment is going to come suddenly, but not without warning. Judgment is going to come suddenly, but not without warning. You see, God, back in Noah's day, had been warning that those people for a thousand years. It's coming. It's coming. You remember the Bible says Enoch, was, he preached against them. He prophesied. He said, look, you, you can't keep living this way, right? He actually named his son Methuselah, which means when he dies, it will come, or judgment will come. And God actually let Methuselah live for a thousand years as a testimony. He, he gave him plenty of time to change things, to get things right. And, and Methuselah, of course, as we know, finally died in the year of the flood, but all of God's warnings are uh, absolutely ignored. Noah comes along. He's a preacher of righteousness, and here he is. He's working on this ark for decades, decades. Not for a year, not for five years, but for decades he's working on this ark. And listen, word spreads, right? Word, word easily spreads. There's this crazy guy over and so and so, that's building this thing. He says judgment's coming, that God's going to flood the world, and we need to get ready. So for decades he works, and finally, unknown to them, there's one week left. There's seven days. God said, tells Noah, in seven days it's coming. Get ready. Get all the animals in the ark. It, it's coming. Seven days are all that's left. And, and, and you've actually got people there that during that seven days, they watch those animals. Can you imagine the crowds that probably gathered to watch that, man? Look at that. <laughs> what, where, it's exactly what he said was going to happen. Look at them. They're coming. I mean, they actually watched that. Now, listen, some of them may have joked and, and ridiculed. Some of them, though, you've got to think, when they saw those animals, thought, you know what? This might be real. Those guys, he might just know what he's really talking about. But here's the problem. The fact is, nobody joined him on the ark. Nobody. Even in that seven days, when they seen Noah getting in, and they seen those animals, they might have been thinking, you know what? Maybe I ought to get on there. <laughs> Maybe I ought to hedge my bets and, and get on that thing, just in case. But they didn't. Nobody did. Because, by the way, if they would have repented, 
and they got on the ark, they would have been saved, but they didn't. Nobody changed their mind. Finally, the day of the flood comes. That morning, the sun comes up just like every other morning. That day, the rooster crowed just like every other morning. That day started out just like every other day, and then it started to rain. And the Bible says that God shut that door, and the earth quaked, and the deeps. The Bible will talk about this next week. Uh, all this earthquakes within the ocean began to happen. The, the, the crust of the earth was fractured, and the water underneath the earth begins to pour out. The oceans begin to rise. Volcanic activity starts to send steam up into the air. It combines with the moistures and torrential rains inundate the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. You see, judgment came suddenly, but there was plenty of warning. Plenty of warning. Now, why is this important? I shouldn't even have to tell us this, but we're going to say it anyway. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 17. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it's going to be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, and they were drinking, and they were marrying, and they were being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. See, Jesus said the same way it was. They had a thousand years to get ready and nobody listened. And then they had decades when Noah was preaching, building the ark. Nobody changed their mind. And then they had seven days. They didn't know it, but they only had seven days. And they, nobody changed their mind. He says it'll be exactly the same when Jesus comes back. Nobody, we, they're being warned, they're listening, they're hearing, but no, they, some of them may even be thinking, you know what, maybe... Maybe these guys are right, but nobody changes their mind. Let me tell you something. If the story, I'm going to tell you how important this is. If the story of Noah is not true, Jesus Christ is a liar and a deceiver. And if Jesus Christ is a liar and deceiver, that means he's a sinner. And if he's a sinner, then he's not the perfect sacrifice and you're still in your sins. That's how important this story is. Because Jesus said it, that's the way it was. Let me say that again. You, you, you hear people say all the time, I, don't, I just don't believe that story. If that story is not true, Jesus is a liar. And if he's a liar, he's a sinner. If he's a sinner, he's not the, the, the spotless lamb that takes away the sins of the world and you are still in your sins. We might as well go out and eat, drink, and be married because tomorrow it's all over. If he's a liar, if Noah. But he's not, of course, Right? Jesus is, in fact, not just a liar. He's truth itself. He cannot lie. And he tells us, just as it was in the flood, that's how it's going to be when, when he comes back. It's going to be like that. In the blink of an eye, it's going to be over. No more time to think. No more time to, you know, once that door shut, once that door shut, I'm sure there were people beating on it. Let us in. I'm sure they were throwing ropes and trying to get every way they could to get on, but it was, it was over. It was too late. You see, this is the warning of Scripture. Over and over, Jesus in the Bible and others in the Bible tell us, be ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. We come in churches on Sunday and we hear our, our pastor and pastors all around this country saying, get ready, get ready, be ready. See, even those who don't go to church and know about the Bible very much, they know the story of Noah. Listen, go out there to unbelievers' websites. There's plenty of them. They, that story of Noah, that's a bunch of baloney. We don't believe all that. Yeah, but you know the story. 
You've heard the story. You, you can't say you don't. And there is the warning of those who live godly lives. Just the same way Noah stood there for decades, we look around in our neighborhoods and our families and we find people that are living godly lives year after year after year after decade after decade. And that is a warning for us to be ready. Be ready. Be ready. See, the godly lives of men and women in this generation do the same thing that Noah did in that day. Noah's obedience in the face of an impossible task stood as a testimony that they needed to repent. Even the march of the animals to the ark stands as a testimony that, it's, it, it, that you've still got a little bit of time, but you need to repent. They bore witness to that generation. And by the way, there's, if, we, if there was none of that other stuff, there's the warning of our own mortality. I got glasses a few weeks ago, and I told somebody the other day, I'm going to, I'm not, they said, how do you like your glasses? I don't like them at all. And they said, why? I said, because I'm not near as good looking as I thought I was when I look in. I didn't realize how much things had changed over the years. I was just, I was in a dream world till I put them on and looked in the mirror. I'm like, really? You all understand that, right? Things hurt when you get up in the morning, and... You don't even know what you did to make them hurt, right? It's just, listen, we're going to die. I don't remember who said it, but uh, it said something like, you know, we always see this nine out of ten dentists agree. Well, one out of one people die. Every person dies. And the Bible says, as appointed unto men wants to die, and after that, the judgment. The judgment. Everybody dies, Okay. After all these warnings, the day is going to come. It may be a day of death for you and I. It may be the day that Jesus returns. But when that day, there's going to come a day that's going to dawn like every other day. But by the end of that day, we'll face Jesus Christ. We'll face the, I mean, is that incredible? The same thing that happened to those people in that day. That day dawned like any other day, but by the end of the day, they were facing their maker. That exact same thing is true for every single person in this room. There's going to come a day. That day's going to dawn like every other day, but by the end of that day, you'll be face-to-face with God Himself. As I said, it may be through your own death. Uh, it may be through the fact that Jesus Christ has returned. But the question is, are you ready? You see, the fact is, right now, this second, the door is open on the ark. Yes? I titled this lesson, The Open Door, because we're in seven days. We're in the seven-day period. The door is open. And you see, the same thing is true for us when it comes to salvation. The door is still open. Right now, it's open. It may be open for another 50 years. It may be open for another seven days. It may be open for another seven minutes, but it's open right now. You see, the Bible clearly shows us that the world is going to be prospering right up to the last second. People are going to be living in luxury and buying things. I was talking to somebody the other day about um, uh, these storage places, right? And they were trying to find a storage place. Couldn't find one. They're all full. What a society we live in, right? I mean, what a society we live in. We've got so much stuff, we have to go rent places to put it in. That is, it's insane. To me. In fact, I was talking to somebody the other day that they uh, had met a guy 
and he's got uh, like eight of them in five different states. And he's had them for like ten years. I can't even imagine the kind of money that takes. But that's the society we live in. See, people are going to be living in luxury and buying things and, and, and all of this stuff, and in the blink of an eye, it's all over. In the blink of an eye, it's all over. Which brings us, in closing, to our third and final fact. We must take the means of escape God has provided. We must take the means of escape that God has provided. Look at verses uh, 6 through 10. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into, into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Listen, Noah didn't come up with this idea himself, did he? God comes to him and says, Noah, this is what's going to happen. This is how you escape. And Noah had a choice. Obey or don't obey. That was his choice. Right? That's, that's what... There's no other means of escape. Listen, I'm sure when the floods start, waters start to rise, people are thinking, I got I to gotta build something. I got to get something here, a raft. I got I to... Gotta... They came up with their own ways, right? But it didn't work. Every single one of them died in that flood. There was only one way to escape the judgment, and that was God's way. And God is gracious enough that that door remained open till the last possible second. The last possible second it remained open. As I said, people watched the animals streaming in. They had one last opportunity to get inside that ark, to get inside to safety if they only would have taken it. See, the door was open, but nobody took it. I don't, I, you know, it would be incredible to know what was in their, in their mind. But the fact is, the door shut, the rain started, and it was all over. You see, even though that door was open, there's a sense. See, this is the thing. I hear this all the time. I think, I remember when I was a teenager... And I wasn't living right, wasn't living, and I, and I knew it. I was in church every Sunday, I'd hear these sermons, and I'd be like, Gah. I'd go home, and I'd be like, Lord, please don't let me die. And I love doing what I'm doing, but don't let me die. And I had in my mind, and I, I just remember all this, I think, well, if I get in a car wreck, what am I going to do? I remember, if I seen it coming, I was going to be like, Jesus, you know. <laughs> How many of y'all had thoughts like that? Am I the only one? Am I the only one that had thoughts like that? Like, Right at the end, I'm just going to scream out. Right? And somehow, I mean, I would think about that kind of stuff. I mean, really, it, that stuff bothered me. wouldn't admit that to anybody. But you see, the fact is, and even though we love stories about deathbed confessions, the fact is there are very, very, very few deathbed confessions. Very few. You see, the fact is most people has, have fixed their mind in unbelief years ago so that they can live the way they want to live. I, I, don't, I, I hear all that stuff, but I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it my way because I love what I'm doing. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I don't want anybody controlling me like that. I'm going to do what I want to do. And so they fix their mind in unbelief year after year after year after year. And maybe in the back of their mind they think, well, one day... 
when I'm too old to enjoy sin anymore, then, then I'll become a believer. But see, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. It's not something you can just one day... The Bible says, no man comes unto me unless I draw him. You don't make that decision on your own. See, a lot of people think, well, I got one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel, that's when I'll do it, right? But the fact is, it just, it just doesn't work that way. And in fact, by then, it very well could be too late. The Puritans had a wonderful saying about deathbed confessions. They said this, we have one account of a deathbed repentance in the whole Bible, by the way. Anybody know who that is? Thief on the cross. You got one account in the whole Bible of somebody that gets saved right before they die. One account. And it said the Bible gives us that so that nobody need to spare. It's never too late. But the Puritans also say that we only have one so that nobody can presume that I can just do it whenever I want to. And I really like that. We only have one so that you don't have to despair. It's never too late. But we only have one, so you don't think you can presume on the mercy of God just to do it whenever you want to do it. In fact, deathbed confessions are very, very rare. There's only one means of escape provided by God. It's not fancy. It's not inviting. You're going to spend a year with a bunch of animals smelling things you normally don't have to smell and putting up with stuff you don't, and sounds and noises. It ain't going to be pretty. It's going to be a great big box covered with tar to make it waterproof, as I said. You're going to be working every day. It's not going to be a nice way. And there's only one door, one way in, one way out. The proud lions and the lowly lizards all come in the same door. Nothing special. It's very narrow. It's very restrictive. You see, people say it all the time. Well, Noah's way is too narrow. Guess what happened to those guys? They died. <laughs> they might have said back then, well, Noah's too judgmental, telling us we're all going to... He needs to be preaching love and tolerance. They died. So you don't argue with God's way. God says, this is how it is. This is, this is the means of escape that I've provided for you. See, when God provides a means of escape, you don't argue, you don't discuss it, you don't debate it, you take it. You get, in the, you get in the door, you act on it, and you take it. See, we're here today. See, knowledge isn't enough. There was a lot of people that knew Noah was building an ark. A lot of them knew it, but they didn't get on it. Admiration. There might have been a lot of people that said, you know, I, don't, I think that Noah's crazy, but you've got to admire That's a hard worker. You've got to admire his perseverance. I'm sure a lot of people admired him, but that ain't enough. It's not enough to know about the ark or admire the ark. It's not enough to intend to get on the ark one day. I'm going to do it one day. See, people had intentions to do it and they died in the flood. Others might have said, you know, when my wife does it or my husband, if they were to get on the ark, I would do it and they died because they're, because they're made or their they're, they're significant other never did that and so they, they died as well. John 14, 6. I want to give you two scriptures and we'll close. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. John 10, 6, Jesus said this, I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. 
There is no other door except Jesus Christ. That is the one. God sent His only Son to this earth to die for our sins and make an ark of salvation for you and I. We don't debate it. You don't argue about it. You don't discuss it. You just get in. You want to be saved? You take it. You believe it. God has ordained one means of salvation for you and I, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other. It's not, it, you, again, it's not about best intentions. Well, I did the best I could. Believe it. Act on it. I mean, in fact, if you're here this morning and you've heard a message as clear as this, guess what? You're responsible for it. You can't say, I didn't know. I never heard it that way. Now you know. So there is no further excuses. Here's the question this morning. Have you gotten on board? The door's still open. Have you gotten on board? Are you fully trusting in Jesus Christ as your only hope of deliverance from God's wrath? Have you, have you seen it and said, you know what, I don't care what it takes. I, I don't care what it takes. My family may say I'm crazy, but I'm getting on board. My, my career, I don't care what it does to my career, I'm getting on board. I don't care what people think. That, that door is open right now. I am getting on board and I'm going to be saved. Have you gotten on board? Genesis 7-1, I love this. Then the Lord said to Noah, come on in. See, that's his invitation to you and I today. Come into the ark. It's time. The door's still open. Come into the ark. It's open. Revelation twenty two seventeen through 20, and we'll close here. The very last verses of the Bible say this. And the Spirit and the bride say what? Come on in. Come. And let him who hears say come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. For he who testifies to these things say, Surely I'm coming quickly. Surely. I'm coming quickly. Have you got on board? Next week, we'll turn over to the flood and begin to actually look what happens, where the waters come from. Uh, just a lot of, of really interesting scientific things we're going to kind of delve into. But for today, listen, if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're not sure that today, um, that if you died, you'd go to heaven, listen, the door is still open. Thank God. Thank God you've got an opportunity here today. Maybe your last one, but you've got an opportunity today to come into the ark. If you're not sure, come see me. There's, there's, there's plenty of people. I'm, Pastor Henry is going to give an opportunity in just a little while. Come into the ark. And trust me, you'll never regret it. Let's pray. Father.